Well, we begin today, Holy Week, and with Holy Week, the beginning of Holy Week is, of course, Palm Sunday, a wonderful picture of a donkey. I think that's a smile. Sometimes, I think, we can become so incredibly familiar with the stories of Scripture Uh, We can become so incredibly familiar with what Jesus does in the Gospels that we kind of miss out on the wider point of what God is revealing in what Jesus is doing. We can develop a sort of blasé attitude about what's happening in Scripture, what's being revealed in Scripture. And quite frankly, folks, we need to fight against that blasé attitude. The so-called triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, which we celebrate today, which begins Holy Week, is just such an event. It is so well known to us that sometimes we don't stop to really think about what is happening, what Jesus is proclaiming, and what it means for us as his people. Well, as we read St. Matthew's account of the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, we see Jesus here do a couple of things that are really important and that we need to understand not only for Holy Week, but for life in Jesus' kingdom beyond. We must recognize that in this event, Jesus reveals himself to be the King, the Messiah, We must recognize that that Jesus receives praises and recognition as king from the crowd. But we also must recognize that as Jesus reveals himself to be king and as the events of Holy Week unfold, Jesus reveals that he is a different kind of king and that his kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. We'll, of course, remember that The people of Judea, the the people of historic Israel, had long been looking for a king to come, a a warrior king that would bring with him justice and salvation or deliverance. They called him Messiah or anointed one, and this this Messiah, this anointed king would come and, and at the head of an army would overthrow the oppressor's of the people, this Messiah would reestablish God's reign, God's physical kingdom upon the earth. Jesus, in riding a donkey down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, and then up to the Temple Mount, is necessarily proclaiming that he is that king. He's necessarily proclaiming that he is the fulfillment of their long-awaited desire. And he does this because, as Matthew points out, it is itself a fulfillment of prophecy pointing towards the king. Now, St. Matthew here in chapter 21, verse 5, St. Matthew takes two Old Testament prophecies, uh, people of Israel used by God to proclaim God's truth. and He's got Old Testament prophecies that point towards this king, identifying what this king would look like and who this king would be. uh, Matthew takes two Old Testament prophecies and he kind of mashes them up. He's got Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and Isaiah 62, 11. Jot those down. Take a look at them later. 
Zechariah 9.9, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a call to worship. This is a call to worship as a response, as a response to the arrival of a king. This king, this individual who's coming to Zion, this king, Zechariah proclaims, is righteous. That means that the king is lawful, he's just, he's correct, and even to the point where the righteous king can be said to be the one who gives the law. He said to have salvation, and that can probably be understood in, in two ways. This king has salvation first in the fact that he himself has been saved or rescued, and then second, it can be understood to, un, to mean that this king will be the saving and delivering agent for his people. Scholar Walter Kaiser has commented that it's probably to be understood both ways. The one riding upon the donkey coming into Zion will himself be delivered from death and in turn will reveal himself to be the deliverer. This righteous one has salvation and he's humble and gentle. He has come through experience of affliction and trial and come through well. And he rides on a donkey. A donkey. I mean, come on, a donkey. I have a great uncle, God rest his soul, he lived in Houston, and as he drove in Houston, he used to call people donkeys. I think that was his way of keeping himself from saying other words at those who were cutting him off in traffic. Donkeys aren't well thought of. Donkeys aren't highly regarded. But a donkey in the ancient world was the preferred mount of princes and kings. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. But for now, let's see that Jesus, by riding on this donkey, is claiming to be the king of Zechariah chapter 9. He is the one who is righteous, and he comes with salvation even as he faces and endures trials. Here comes the king, because here comes Jesus. And that other, other, other Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 62 verse 11, this is what we read there. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, behold, your salvation comes Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. In Hebrew, the word salvation is Yeshua. And I, I mention this because in Hebrew, Jesus' name is Yeshua, which means salvation. And I bring all of this up because in Isaiah 62, verse 11, salvation is personalized. Here again, what Isaiah says, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him. Salvation is called his, personified. Salvation, deliverance, is not some vague notion of righteousness, but rather salvation is a person in Isaiah 62, verse 11. And as Jewish Jesus believer David Stern has pointed out, a person who is personified out salvation must be God. It's in the king's name to bring deliverance. So what does all this mean? Well, if we put Zechariah 9 together with Isaiah 62, we have this mashup. We, we look at Jesus riding on a donkey. We have to see that Jesus is the long-expected king who's connected to God in a unique way, in a special way, and who brings with him salvation. It's an action that shouts, here comes the king. 
And that's how the crowds saw it. The crowds cheered, they shouted, they praised, they shouted out Hosanna, which means save us. Save us, O deliverer. Save us, Messiah, come. They shouted out bits of scripture from Psalm 118, which again reflects their belief that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the long-awaited king who would come and deliver them from their oppressors and establish God's kingdom upon earth. The crowd recognized what was happening They recognized what Jesus was proclaiming. But the issue, I think, is this. What kind of king would Jesus show himself to be? What kind of king was Jesus? There is no doubt that he's proclaiming himself king. As I said, the donkey was the preferred means of transportation for princes, kings, and and leaders. But what I left unsaid is this. The donkey was the preferred mount for princes, kings, and leaders as they mingled peacefully with their people. A big deal, right? Well, yeah, it is a big deal. Because Jesus rode into Jerusalem not as a conquering general astride a war horse, not at the head of an army geared for battle, but rather as a king of peace whose power is exercised in different ways. In all of world history... You think about those generals or kings who go to war. Hannibal, as he attacked the Roman Empire, had elephants, right? Alexander the Great led at the head of a mighty army. Darth Vader had his at-ats as he attacked (laughs) the rebel base on Hoth. Aragorn had a ghost army as he attacked the forces of Mordor. Jesus comes on a donkey. George Patton had tanks. Jesus had a donkey. And that points out that he's a different kind of king. The Jewish people of Jesus' day was looking for another sort of David, a warrior that would come to kill all their enemies and let God do the sorting. They were expecting a Messiah king to come with what Robert Farrar Kappen calls straight line power, where you use the force you need to get the result you want. But through the course of his ministry, and as Jesus enters into Jerusalem upon the back of a donkey, he refused to shock and awe. Shock and awe, or rapid dominance, is a military strategy that is based on the use of overwhelming power, dominant battlefield awareness, dominant maneuvers, and spectacular displays of force. That's straight-line power. That's right-handed power, and that's exactly what Jesus refused to use. Jesus declared himself to be a king that would exercise what Martin Luther calls left-handed power, A kingly power, a kingly leadership that looks like weakness, vulnerability, service, suffering, and for Jesus, death. Jesus takes this human notion of what it means to be a king, and he turns it on its head. He's a different kind of king for a different kind of kingdom. Most kings sit upon the throne in their city demanding to be served. But Jesus entered the city to serve. He entered the city to rule, but not through the exercise of sheer power. Human kings had armies that fought for them. Human kings sent others to die for them. But Jesus is the one who dies for the many. In him, in the death of the king, is salvation. 
And this paradox of Jesus, this paradox of Jesus, the king who has power above all powers, and and, and the paradox of that identity, that that being of Jesus, and the exercise of his kingly power is is reflected upon by St. Paul in his letter to the Philippians. Doug read for us this morning, this is what Paul says about King Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' exercise of kingly authority, kingly power, may not look like power in the eyes of the world, but as Capon has said, it is, in fact, the only thing in the world evil can't touch. Jesus is the king, but he's a different kind of king who exercises his power through service, love, suffering, and sacrifice. And if that is the king, what is his kingdom to look like? In his book, Kingdom Conspiracy, author Scott McKnight states, the character of the king determines the character of the kingdom. Let's not be mistaken, Jesus is king. And if Jesus is the king... And if Jesus rejects straight-line power of shock and awe of military, political, or any other type of right-handed power, then those who are in his kingdom are to reject the same. In fact, if we turn our attention back to Philippians chapter 2, we start at verse 4. This is, again, what Paul writes. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see that the kingdom people are to be shaped like the king? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Jesus' kingly reign, his kingly rule is cruciform. It is in the shape of a cross. And so the people over whom Jesus reigns and over whom Jesus rules are to be cruciform as well. They are to be in the shape of a cross. But what does that mean? Well, at the very least, being cruciform means loving your neighbor as yourself which means seeing the other in full light. Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. At the very least, being cruciform means refusing straight-line power in personal relationships with others, rather choosing the left-handed power of Jesus that looks like service and love and suffering and even death. Being cruciform like the king means being committed to the king and the tokens of the kingdom that he has given, the fellowship, word, and sacrament. Being a part of a different kind of kingdom with a different kind of king means that we are committed to what the king has given to his kingdom, even, and I would say, especially when it looks weird to the world around us. It means being cruciform, means trusting in the king of the kingdom well above 
and beyond trusting in all earthly powers and all worldly attempts to exercise power. And being a part of Jesus' kingdom means that it is Jesus who is king and that his reign and his rule in our lives takes priority to any and every other claim of authority. We can never lose sight. Jesus is king, and he's a different kind of king for a different kind of people. And if we have come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, as king, then we too ought to be a different kind of person, brought into this different kind of kingdom under the leadership of a different kind of king with left-handed power, power of weakness, power of service, power of love, power of sacrifice. We know how Holy Week ends for Jesus the king. We know that Jesus is as the week progresses, come against by forces. We know on Good Friday, Jesus will be enthroned as the suffering king upon a wooden throne, a cross. And we know that Jesus, having conquered over sin and death and hell through his death, kicks down the door of the grave, emerges victorious and says, here I am, here comes the king. The reality for us is that Jesus is king who suffered, who died, and who God glorified. Is there any question then that in his kingdom there will be suffering, service, love, and glorification through it? Here comes the king, Jesus, a different kind of king for a different kind of people, a different kind of king for a different kind of kingdom. I've said this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.